Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ooh. All right. Here we go. You've waited all week for this, and it's been worth it. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Hey, True Crime Uncensored, I am the legendary Burl Bear, the genius sitting next to me is Mark Boyer, fact checker, co-host, produced by Magic Matt Allen. Yep, same guy, famous, yep. Living legend, too. And joining us, Rebecca Morris. Rebecca. Hi, Burl. I was just uh, reminding myself that you're from the, the Northwest, too. Yes, uh, yes, I lived in Seattle, probably next door to you. Uh, I think they, <laughs> they cordoned all of our true crime writers off. We're very familiar with the fact that you are a very famous true crime writer. And as you even uh, did a, a book with Greg Olson, which must have been a fascinating experience. Well, we Greg. did a couple of books together, and um, it, it was interesting, and it really, you know, in a way, helped to open the door for me. He's, he's now doing mostly fiction, and I'm off doing my own true crime yeah. uh, writing, but, but it was interesting. And, of course, we'll forever be joined in some ways because the royalty you know of, of the of that book and incidentally one of those books we did a killing for amish country has been optioned for a lifetime movie oh it figures that makes perfect sense <laughs> but both of them are uh covered often on true crime tv i mean sometimes they'll when the producer calls i'll, I'll say well do you know this has been done you know eight times right on true crime and TV, and they say it doesn't matter. They, oh, no. There's still an interest in it. It's the same thing I just, uh, Frank Gerardo and I just did uh, another one on the taste for murder about, uh, what's her name, and, uh, Angelina Rodriguez, who put yeah. the, the antifreeze in her husband's Gatorade. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we've done uh, several on that, and uh, you know, I think it's just a certain number of true crime cases appeal to the TV audience, and they'll just keep oh. recycling those super hits, you know, and it's good yeah. for us. Cause yes, it, it is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we had Greg on the well, show a, think, couple months, a couple months ago. He's I think a great when guy. I met you, Burl, I was leaving a taping in Los Angeles, and you were arriving for right, it. Right, 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 right. You got out of a cab, and I was getting in, and I said, oh, you're, you're Burl. And <laughs> this is where the elite meet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't remember what that show was about, but... Neither do um, I. Yeah. But I do remember yeah. someone else showed up. There was a fan, a true crime fan, autograph-seeking. Oh, how did they know you were going to be there? I have no idea. Maybe I mentioned it on the air or something. Oh, but, uh, okay. I don't know who these people are kind of hanging around with this weird grin on their face staring at me while I'm waiting outside. <laughs> they finally go, are you Pearl Berry? Can we have your autograph? you got to be kidding. I mean, I haven't had an, oh album, an album out since 72. <laughs> well, there are fans and then there are fans. Yeah, sometimes they get a little too close. The one where if I can't have you, no one can. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, get it. There's nothing like being stalked by someone who sends you 35 letters a day. Oh, did that happen to you? Yes, it did. <clears throat> What's wrong wow. with a sentence that has 35 letters in it? <laughs> wow. 
Oh, punctuation, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. It was very strange. She was very nice. Uh, and uh, she, <laughs> I was a little worried, you know. Was it a, a woman or a man? It was a woman this time. <laughs> was it Jessica Walters? No, it wasn't. Close, though. <laughs> uh, same sort of thing. Uh, a little, little play, Misty, for me. Uh, yeah. Yes. Oh, I know. Isn't that a great movie? Yeah, really? it is. I mean, yeah, it it really stands up. But it was it was it was just like that. It was exa- you know, the, the, yeah. the five six seven letters a day, nonstop phone calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. To my work, to everything. And telling you to stop harassing her? No, no, she was very sweet. Uh-huh. Uh, all about how much she loved me and you know. Oh, she was in love with you. And wanted me to be her uh, you know sexual uh, whatever uh, uh, puppet. Yes, her puppet. Yeah. Her boy toy? Yeah, the boy toy with no strings attached puppet. <laughs> uh, and she was very sweet. Uh, it, th- the letter stopped when she got appropriate psychiatric help. And, oh. and she wrote me a very nice letter out of the blue saying, I apologize if I caused any problems. I needed medication wow. and I'm fine now. And I uh, hope you forgive me. And, uh, and by the way, my here's toy. my address. Come Yeah, well, that came later. <laughs> and, oh. Then she married a very nice fellow. In another state, Texas or something. Yeah. Oh, nice. Excuse me. And then went off her wow. meds again. Uh oh. And I started getting oh. letters again. Oh my gosh. And then her husband calls me. <laughs> and says, oh. Have you written about this girl? About about this incident? What about it? Have you written about it? Oh no, no, no. I haven't written. I just okay. talked about it just now for the first time in probably twenty years. Yeah. Uh-huh. But uh, no, she turned out it got okay. They got back together and she got her medication again. She's a very sweet girl. Uh, okay. But I did something nice for her. I recommended her for a job, which she got, which unfortunately she later lost because she was off her meds. Hmm. Yeah. But as long as she was to took her medication, she was just fine and dandy. Yeah. Well, we've heard that before, don't we? That people, it's so important to stay on them. Yeah, one of the symptoms of the you need to take it is when you think, I don't need to take this anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's a sad story. Now, speaking of sad stories, this uh, Chiron, uh, what's his name? Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, we, Dan, Dan Zapansky uh, did a show with you, uh, what, when the book first came out. Oh, oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Mark and I uh, are fans of Dan's, and Dan's a fan of our show. In fact, he's been on well, our show a couple times. Wait, and I know he's a fan of yours, and yeah. And yeah, so uh, we crazy. were listening to that show, that interview today. Oh, and they, okay. well, you know, Dan has 90 minutes. We don't. <laughs> yeah. said, How are we going to get all this in there? Uh, <laughs> it's a yeah. hell of a story. Yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's, Mark, here's Mark Boyer right now with a question for you. Yeah, I was, um, I was fascinated with the approach you took because we generally don't... Uh, have to discuss material that isn't resolved. We try to avoid yeah. the Nancy Grace uh, sensationalism, and then just yeah. talk about the facts of the case. But I was uh, I was fascinated by your approach of uh, of how the this abduction, in air quotes, uh, affected the family and the community at large. Yeah. And it continues to, I can tell you, uh, it continues to every every day. Um, uh, this kid so goes missing. I, I mean, the audience doesn't have the backstory on this. Why don't you just very quickly give the setup, okay. and then we'll take it yeah. from there. Go ahead. Yeah, so Kyron Horman was a seven-and-a-half-year-old in second grade, he fifth the grade, I think, at a grade school in Portland, Oregon. It was just, just north of the city. Consider the city, but it was really quite a rural 
and quite a wooded area. And um, part of the story is that his mother, Desiree Young, um, had given temporary custody to his father, Keen Horman, when Desiree was having some, some medical issues when, when Kyron was young, and she never got the custody back. But they did have an arrangement that he spent, you know, a lot of time with Desiree and her husband, who was a Medford, Oregon cop, uh, in Medford, and every other weekend, you know, Desiree would drive to Portland or meet them halfway to pick him up. So he was, you know, definitely between these two homes. Meanwhile, his father, Kane, had married again um, a woman named uh, Terry Moulton, Terry Horman, she was, and she had a, a teenage son by another marriage, and then and then Kane and Terry had a a baby girl. So at the time that uh, Kyron disappeared, it was uh, June 4th, 2010. There was a, it was one of the last days of, of school uh, for the spring, and his school was having uh, an, an exhibition of their science projects, and, and he'd worked really hard on his science project, was about the, the red tree frog. And his stepmother took him to school, and uh, she says they, they looked at his exhibit. She took a photograph, the last known photograph of him standing in front of his exhibit. Uh, they visited a classroom he'd been in the year before. And then she says he went down the hall to his second grade classroom and turned and they waved goodbye to each other. Well, you know how they say the first six hours, the first 24 hours are so important in a missing person. This child was missing six hours before anybody knew he was missing because the stepmother had set up this very uh, simple yet elaborate uh, scenario in which his second grade school teacher thought she was taking him to the dentist or to the doctor. So they left his jacket and they left his backpack in the room and um, but then, um, Terry Horman said, well, no, the, the doctor's appointment is really the next week. But the, and she left him in, in the school. Uh, well, the police sat on the most important witnesses and, and information. They sat on it for either several months or a year or two. And that is that there were witnesses that saw her walk out of the school with him including his bus driver who saw him every day and a uh, student and, and their grandmother. So she was seen leaving with him, but they didn't reveal that for a while. So in trying to, uh, eventually, I mean, the teacher reported him, you know, not in class yeah. because of this excuse, the doctor's visit. But then, you know, when he didn't get off the school bus at home, and uh, his father called the school, and uh, they didn't know where Kyron was, and he'd actually been missing six hours. That's a long time right. for a child to be missing. That is a long time. Um, the, it turned into the largest search and investigation in Oregon history. He's never been found. That's, um, and you know, you're right, Bill, that you know, publishers and TV and radio shows, they want an ending. They want to know what the ending is. Right. Well, I watched this case for 10 years after he disappeared because 
you know, and that's what Greg and I did with our, our one of our books. We you'd watch it to see is there an ending? When is the ending? <coughs> I just my instinct was I've got a uh, you know coming up on 2020 which was the 10th anniversary of his disappearance, I just felt like I, it was really time for a book because they haven't found him. They've exhausted the hundreds of thousands of acres uh, in that area of, of Northwest Portland. Um, they were never able to arrest the stepmother. Um, she got a, a very uh, high-priced attorney in Portland, Oregon, defense attorney. She never... Uh, she was questioned by the police that first weekend, but after that, um, and she took three polygraphs, two polygraphs, she failed, and the third one she walked out on. That's so that not, wasn't a particularly good, good track record. Pardon? That's not a good sign. I also have one of her that's friends. That's not a good sign. One of her friends uh, Everybody also. was suspicious. Of course, Desiree, right. Kyron's mother, was suspicious of her automatically and there had been bad blood between you know uh between the stepmother and, and the mother um and uh so the two families were sequestered together you know, in a house for the first few days with police to um but you know there was never a ransom and they they knew the police knew early on this is not your usual abduction or kidnapping. There is no ransom. This is somebody who knew him. And the thing that complicated it is the school uh, in 2010, uh, I think there were either five or seven doors to the outside. They were all wide open. There's no security, no cameras, no the parents and grandparents visiting the science program, uh, the science uh, fair, rather, didn't need to have ID badges. And so it is possible that somebody, you know, wandered in. But, again, they, they were always, from the get-go, suspicious of the stepmother. So they tried to very quickly um, pin down, where, where, where was she? Yeah, you know? at Fred and, Meyer for hours. Yes, she went to two Fred Meyers, which is a drugstore, grocery store in the Northwest. Um, she says she stopped by dry cleaners but didn't go in and then her and then she's off the grid for two hours at least yeah with no memory she, where, where were you those two hours <laughs> yeah yeah well she said the, the baby the infant girl was in the truck also with her and she said she was fussy she stopped to get some cold medicine and then she drove the little girl around for two hours to try to you know get her settled like sometimes kids like that but um you know uh, police were pretty sure and everybody was pretty sure that what she did during those two hours was now, i have a question i gotta, gotta, I gotta interrupt you because i oh well i gotta ask what the hell could her motive be to do something awful to the little kid? Well, she um, was uh, angry at her husband, made her Kyron's father. He had sent, you know, her teenage son had lived with them, with them for a while. He was eventually sent, you know, to Medford to his grandparents to get him out of there. And she was angry about that, that her son had to leave. I think she... I don't think she really bonded or cared or, or loved Chiron. I mean, she was the 
mother on the scene for oh, maybe five years, five of his seven years. Um, but she resented everybody. She resented her husband. Um, she, uh, they found out, the police found out during this investigation that she had tried to hire uh, a, a landscape person working for her to kill to kill her husband. Oh, that's that, nice. Yeah. That was a, that was found out along the way. Well, the she landscaper would know how to bury the body. That's probably why she yeah, took the landscaper. Yeah. And uh, later they put a wire on the on the fellow and tried again, but she kind of she wasn't she wasn't done. She wised up to that. But she um, uh, and you know my feeling is somebody with her kind of history will. Someday she's going to get tripped up again. And I'll, I'll jump to part of the end of the story. She moved to California. She's married for, it's either the third or fourth time. And when she moved to California in about 2011, uh, um, uh, yeah, 11, um, she was arrested a couple of times. She was arrested for threatening a roommate with a knife. Ah. And she was arrested for taking a roommate's gun. And so... She's a troubled um, personality, as we say in the crime industry. And I think, uh, you know, people are just hoping she's going to, you know, really trip up seriously. Um, (coughs) Well, if she's that mad at her husband, in her thought process, I'm really going to get him, I'm going to murder his... His kid. How about it's that? Yeah. That'll teach yeah. him a lesson. Yeah. So that, I mean, it doesn't seem like the, the motivation to end all motivations. But, you know, I've decided over these years that I think greed, greed comes in many forms. Yeah. You know, it can be sexual. It can be romantic. It can be financial. But it can also be, you know, I'm going to make this still the life I want. I want my life to be. And if that means getting rid of people, you know, not having to be responsible for somebody else's son, yeah, then then I'll find a way to do it. And uh, Mark uh, uh, Mark Boyer has a question for you. Here. Yes, I'm Mark. Your microphone would be helpful. You want to use mine here? I can. Oh, there you go. I was wondering, uh, was uh, was was this little boy a pain in the ass? Or no. was it her? Oh, it's her. He was, you know, and I've spent a lot of time with, uh, um, with, of course, with his mother and that that side of the family. He was actually very a very sweet kid, and kind of a little a little goofy, but but very sweet and very loving. And I, you know, I I've been in the house where he. You know, grew up. I know his grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and Desiree and her, uh, and and friends. You know, the the people that come into your life when there's a tragedy like that that want to help. And you know, the women that still run the Facebook pages, the women that throw the fundraisers, uh, the women who began the Wall of Hope at the school with, you know, thousands of ribbons and signs when they were looking for him. Um, those people are still around, and um, from everything that I could know, he was just a, you know, just a sweet kid, a bit, a little timid, 
um, you know, he wore glasses and he, but he was, you know, tweet. What are the uh, one of the things that the people uh, who listen to this program seem to, according to research, seem to uh, really enjoy the most is to ask this question: How did you write the book? <laughs> how did you, you know, how what, how did you start the process on this? Was it difficult well, to get the information with her? Because the, being it's an ongoing investigation, even after all this yeah. time, could you get police reports or? Uh, it was it was very hard. It was probably. Uh, you know, the hardest book I've done because it's an open case even though they, they've stopped looking for him. You know, the Portland Sheriff's Office says they, you know, there's nowhere else to look. Uh, but I don't think they ever close a case of a, of a missing child. Um, so there's not much, not much going on except on, you know, Desiree's end. And so there wasn't, there's no police report. There's no case file. Um, the cops wouldn't, you know, the sheriff's department wouldn't talk to me. Um, her, let's see, Terry Horman's attorney wouldn't talk to me. I couldn't, she wouldn't talk to me. Um, I talked to Kyron father, you know, but uh, we had a brief conversation, but he didn't want to participate in the book. So, but I'll tell you, the uh, uh, one of the places I started is with the journalism that had been done on this in 2010, 2011, and including, you know, the Oregonian, the newspaper in Portland, where right. I once worked. And uh, it, because this had really captured the attention and still does of the Portland media, the Portland TV stations, the Portland all news radio stations, the newspapers. It, it's just a huge, I think it's the largest story to ever, you know, take place in, in Oregon. And um, so I had the family, I had, you know, friends. Um, I believe I talked to Kyron's uh, principal. Um, there were, um, there was the journalism that, that, you know, day by day during during all of this. Um, I did a lot, a lot of time with Desiree's mother. And then um, just, you know, reading everything I could find, reading about other cases. And I, I've never really deliberately taken on a cause when I wrote a book before, but I thought it was time. Yeah. So the, the final chapter is about that, you know, no body cases, which this was, can be prosecuted and can be prosecuted successfully because prosecutors wait right. until there's a body. body. And if there's, yeah, if there's a murder yeah. case, it, it's important yeah. to have a body, but you can, it's risky to go for yeah. a conviction when you don't have a body. Is yeah. uh, uh, within a body and somebody's acquitted, they can never be double jeopardy. Yeah. I was just yeah. going to ask it's that question. Jeopardy. Yeah. yeah. But, but I found, uh, you know, the expert in the United States who's an expert on, he actually tracks no-body cases, including a few others in Oregon that have been successfully prosecuted. So that's kind of my, um, uh, my you know. Right. But every, you know, everything in the case hinges on circumstantial evidence yeah. and hearsay. Exactly. It, and, it yeah. It does. And the fact she flunked, you know, uh, two polygraphs and walks out on one, and that they can't, her cell phone, um, you know, it pinged in an area, and again, she just said she was uh, driving the baby around. Mm -hmm. They, they think that the somebody seat. spotted her the week before. 
possibly scouting out places in this wooded forest um, where she could, you know, leave him. Um, there's also uh, an area called Savvy Island, uh, north of Portland in that area, where it's just, you know, it's, I think it's thousands of acres of marshland. Ooh. And, you know, a body, finding a body in water is really hard. Yeah, or sand is another one. Yes, yeah. And so it was circumstantial, but, um, you know, there was nowhere else. It, no. it just also was obvious. Yeah. And, and, um, yet, and yet if you and I say she did it, she's liable to sue us. <laughs> well, I guess, but lots of people have, have said, you know, she did it. I, I mean, I leave that to her mother and, and uh, all of that. But, you know, so her husband, Kyron's father, of course, divorced, divorced her after... Oh, yeah. Guess what? You know, Your wife was trying to hire me to kill you. Oh, yeah. thanks for the information. Yeah. 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 So there was a day that summer, a few months after Kyron disappeared, when the detective said, would you come down to this hotel in downtown Portland? We want to talk to you and bring the baby girl, you know, and he does, and that's where they tell him we have evidence that, you know, Terry tried to have you killed. So he immediately, uh, as soon as she's, you know, running an errand, he gets in the house, locks, you know, changes the locks, etc., has a restraining order, files for divorce, and she loses, you know, custody. She's never allowed to see her little girl. Oh, boy, that really must piss her off. That, that would, you'd think that would cause, you know, maybe urge somebody to nudge them to, you know, <clears throat> come to a compromise or, uh, yeah. you know, um, you know, I, I yeah, but there was no negotiation on, on that. Um, <clears throat> she lived for a while with her parents in, um, uh, in Southern Oregon, in Roseburg, uh, and then and then moved to California. And uh, again, there, you know, the people who are on her trail, you know, kind of know where she's working at the time and when she got married and all that. But um, uh, that so it was it was it was a challenge in the book because you know police reports tell you so much. Yeah. They tell you so many things that that only the police know. You know what's fascinating, and this is again for people who are totally into this whole true crime thing of into how do you do this, do this work. There have been uh, Kansas, for example. If you uh, file one of these, uh, you know, freedom of information reports on a yeah. police case, yeah. what you get is the cover sheet only. Yeah. And whether you get anything other than the cover sheet depends entirely right. on how the chief of police feels about you personally. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I think my memory is about 12 or 14 years ago when I was writing, my first book was about a little girl who's been missing 60 years in Tacoma, Washington, and Ted Bundy was her neighbor and, as a teenager. And I, I filed a freedom of information for, I mean, it was you know, 40 years after he'd been executed, and I, I couldn't get anything from the FBI. No, and sometimes... 40 years later. Yeah. Uh, often I've run into cases that I'm working on where 
the information is there, but it's been sealed. Yeah. Yeah. Why? And why? Why? So why is it sealed? It's really public yeah. domain information. <coughs> well. Yeah. That it's not. That it's not, no. So those books don't get written. I mean, if I run into it, it's just too damn difficult. Where I can't get cooperation yeah. from anybody. You know? Well, yeah, and I think that's why, you know, some cases um, are easier. You know, it certainly is easier to pick a case that, okay, that, you know, somebody's been convicted, somebody's gone to prison, uh, you know, we know what happened. And um, I don't know, I'm just drawn to the ones that are really more mysteries and that are more complicated. Yeah, I, I'd also like to pick ones that people haven't heard about. Yes, the ones that haven't heard about that, that um... Uh, sometimes you know, if there's been a lot of press coverage, people think they already know everything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, they do, and they, um... And it turns out they don't. So uh, if I can mention very quickly, so one of the books that Greg and I did is If I Can't Have You, it's about Susan Powell, who's missing in Utah since 2009, and during a foster care dispute with the father, Josh Powell, and Susan's parents, so Josh killed the children and himself, rather than lose custody of the children to her parents. And that was in uh, 2012. Well, I'm I'm actually doing a follow-up because there was a trial two years ago. You know, Josh is not here to to try him. Um, But there was a trial two years ago. Uh, Susan's parents sued the state of Washington uh, over the murders of these children when they were in state custody. And they won, and they won big. But, um, so, the state of Washington was found guilty of, you know, letting these boys be murdered, and the jury set a huge award, and the judge cut the award, judges have that right to do that, but the the judge cut the award and said, uh, in so many words, well, it's not like they were going to grow up to be professional athletes. What? As far as, you know, their, their, their lives... And what, their, what the value of their life was. They were five and seven years old. Who's to say? They that is one of the weirdest and most disgusting things I've ever heard. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm uh, dumbfounded and, by that um, one. So the, uh, there's a hearing next month. The state of Washington has been appealing the, the guilty verdict and the award. <clears throat> and Foxes have been feel, uh, appealing the cut and the award. So that may or may not be the end of this, but there's so much. You know, I knew this story forward and backwards, but in the trial testimony, I mean, there's so much that I had never heard that only could be in a police report or in a, in a trial transcript, and in this case, the trial transcript. And uh, so I'm, I'm reading, I don't know, it's tens of thousands of pages of trial transcripts and case files and, and, and all of that. So I, I, that's one where, you know, uh, and I don't know if this, I hope it's not the last book I write, but I wouldn't be surprised because it's going to take uh, probably three years. 
Yeah, that's that's the fascinating thing about doing a true crime book. You can spend a lot of time searching for a case, and then you know it's going to yeah. take a year, two years worth of research, yeah. and then with the time yeah. to write it when it comes yeah. out, and what's the market then? Yeah. <laughs> you have those marketing yeah. considerations. Again, unless it's a pretty open and where you know, it's very clear what happened and who did. I mean, it reminds me of the uh, Corey Mitchell's book about the uh, Central Park Five. Uh, oh, yes. Where yeah. you, I read the book, of course, and he gets to the end of the book and he says, his, his author's comments, these people are innocent. Yes. <laughs> and he and was now, right. They were innocent. Now we know so much more that, that uh, there's, a, there's a great documentary about, you know, about that case. And, uh, um, but for, what is it, 10 or 15 years, 20 years, we didn't know they were innocent. They did. They did, yeah. yeah they do the innocent. Isn't it fascinating? In that documentary, you see them as teenagers being questioned by the police and agreeing to things that just weren't true. Well, that, yeah, they figure that I'll just tell them what they want to hear, clean it up afterwards. But you can't. Yeah. Yeah, or, or, you know, I mean, I'm 13 and I'm intimidated. <laughs> you know, I better do what, you know, they're not, to, they're not even supposed to interview these kids unless their parent yeah. or guardian is there. Yeah, their parents or guardians there. And it was it was really a travesty. And, uh, and uh, those guys, they, um, you know, the, the, you know, have stuck together and, and have come out of it, most of them have come out of it, you know, uh, in in good emotional shape. That's amazing. I don't know how, but yeah, they did. They did either. Uh, there was a case that I, I almost did a book on from Walla Walla, Washington, where this uh, yeah. 87-year-old woman is murdered, uh, sexually assaulted with a broom handle. <coughs> Her house is ripped to shreds. Uh, oh. There was a Hispanic gentleman seen leaving the house at 2 o'clock in the morning. They caught that guy and deported him. <laughs> didn't charge with anything. Uh, and then uh, X number of years later, they finally charged uh, people. They charged the, at that time, 14-year-old neighbor girl and her 10-year-old friend. Oh. And uh, oh. when I got, uh, I was able to get the copy, miraculous, there's an attorney who refused to talk to me. No, in this case. They, letters from the girls to him? or yeah, Letters from the uh, attorney to uh, the person uh, who was in prison, you know, okay. convicted. They convicted these the, the girl. When she turned 18, they, they you know, arrested her. Yeah. And she did a hell of a long time in prison. And uh, she wasn't even there. Her friend who testified against her, who was 10 years old, wasn't there either. Uh, there was another witness who was, uh, wasn't there, but was pretending it was their brother was there. And other, some of them impersonated someone else and gave their testimony to her, the deposition of the cops and wasn't even the real person. It was just oh. a horrifying situation. They even did a second trial and she was found guilty again. Fortunately, the governor oh. finally intervened and let her out of prison oh. after like, you know, 20 years or something. Oh my gosh. Uh, and the oh, thing is, is I talked oh. to the detectives on the case and they knew that she didn't do it. They didn't expect her to be found guilty. They thought, well, we don't have, there's not enough of a case there, and this will just put pressure on her to tell us uh, who really did it. We think we know who that is. And the fellows who really did it were already in prison by then for some other heinous crime. I mean, it was just... Did the cops intervene then at that point if they knew she was... At that point, probably they could. They couldn't. 
to say, you know, what do they say? We know she's innocent and this was a waste of time. Yeah. You're not a cop much longer if you do that. Well, if it was a Denzel Washington movie, he would. (laughs) No, Denzel has been bad guys before. We had this guy on the show, Rebecca. We had a fellow on our show, policeman, cop. Uh, He goes to work for a new uh, police department. They say, hey, we've been getting criticism on this case where we sent these two guys to prison for murder. Uh, Will you look it over and make sure that we did everything right? And he looks it over and goes back to to the chief and says, no, we did everything wrong. These guys are obviously innocent. we got to get them out of prison. And he said, sit down and shut up. Well, he didn't sit down and shut up. He advocated for these guys, got them out of prison. And lost his job. And then he didn't get his pension. Why didn't he get his pension? Because he violated a clause in his contract not to reveal city secrets. And it was a city secret that these two guys were railroaded. Wow. That is just... So I think right now in New York City, I think they're like... 60 cases have been reopened because they know that the investigation was flawed and and then, then it came down to a bad apple, you know, a cop who I think was involved in those 60 cases. Yeah, well, that was the same thing in Philadelphia. There was this, uh, this is a black state senator or something, gets lost. And he stops to ask directions from a policeman, and they throw him across the hood of his car and, uh, you know, arrest him for something. And he complains, and because he had the, you know, the power, he was in a power position, uh, some of the policemen rolled over and admitted that they had been planting evidence on people. thousand cases. They had to let people out because they had all been framed by the cops yeah. to, close, to close the case. And, uh, in a way, I find that, that kind of you know, organizational corruption more difficult than your, you know, the murders that come along sometimes. Because I, I, what, what can you do about that kind of organizational dysfunction? Um, um, I, I may be able to speak to that. Do it. Um, okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I have, uh, my career is in IT. And I was at uh, Lapida, LAPD, for the oh. year 2000 conversion. Oh. And uh, I was in the really middle of the, the Rampart scandal. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Rampart scandal. And my, my job, or my task, was, uh, upon request, collect information from the transaction logs of the various police systems. Uh, and then take them downstairs for someone else to convert into English. Understandable yeah. English. <laughs> yeah, yeah, instead of computeries. Um, they, it was uh, uh, such a an ordeal that they had to physically bring, and we're talking, you know, this is, a, you know, 22 years ago. Yeah. Um, they had to bring one of those big giant tape machines into our office so the chain evidence would all would be preserved. I run the report, the tape comes out, I take it off the, off the, the device, and then the, the officers escort me downstairs. Um, the, the sergeants that I interacted with, the two gentlemen that would come and collect me, and escort me downstairs. They were sequestered in, in a, in air quotes, a secret location for the investigation because of the potential violence against them. 
because they were investigating fellow officers. By their fellow police officers. Right. And um, in conversation, it was it was clear that they were on the fence about just quitting the job because doing this investigation was so distasteful. Not because of what the perpetrators did, but merely having to be the investigating officers. Oh, my gosh. Um, There is such a blue wall. Mm-hmm. And yeah. such a protect-your-own uh, environment in larger police departments um, that, um, you know, finding, prosecuting, investigating uh, the bad apples is yeah. just so distasteful they don't even bother. We had a guest on, Chili Pimpin in New Jersey. I was just thinking of Michael Gordine, the third most corrupt cop in the history of the NYPD. And he can get away with anything now. He quit. He never got in in, uh, trouble. And his deal was, I won't tell what else I know as long as you don't give me a bad time. So anytime he gets picked up for anything, he says, I'm Michael Gordine. And they go, go, sorry, have a nice day. Sorry, have a nice day. But he basically keeps his nose clean. Yeah. But the thing is that, same thing in the ramparts, I'm sure, is that the people underneath somebody get in trouble. But, you know, like you say with the turtleneck, the cover-up goes all the way to the top. You know, uh, the guys above them are protected. They're still there. It's a very strange thing. There was a study on prosecutorial misconduct that came out, what, about two years ago? Uh-huh. That was shocking. I mean, L.A. didn't look that good. Well, we've, um, I've asked, Burl has asked, many of our um, attorney guests on the show, why is the conviction more important than getting the guilty? Yeah. Uh-huh. <gasps> Every single prosecutor we've ever had on the show, I always ask them, have you been pressured to pursue conviction against someone that in your heart of hearts you thought was innocent? And they all said yes. You know, we have we have a pretty good system, but it isn't perfect. No, yeah. Because, because humans are involved. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We could just get human beings out of the life equation. Um, I read a fascinating article last week on um, law and order as an encompassing property. All the shows. And the producer of the show from the beginning, his intent was to portray everyone involved in all those shows as the saints. The legal system works. The police department isn't corrupt. Um, the cases all get solved. Uh, the attorneys, the prosecutors have a conscience. And if they see something wrong, they take care of it. Oh, yeah, right. And that just isn't reality. Well, they must have thought that's what, that's what viewers want. Um, according to the think, article think, and, and, his, uh, and the producer's own... Uh, uh, comments, verbal and written comments, is that as a specific intent. Uh-huh. His, you know, his intent is show them in the best light, and he has said that over um, several times. So you, you know, you watch the shows; they're excellent. I've enjoyed them all over the years, um, but you get a sense, a false sense of security. You know, 
Now, and my, my time with Lapida, um, all of the of the officers I interacted with were just normal people trying to do the best job they can in the environment they're in. You know, so I didn't run into any bad apples or anyone that was stupid or just didn't care. But of course, it was you know a small sample, of like fifty yeah. or so people. Well, I think I so bet are you. Are you saying that in all these years of law and order, twenty years of it, or however, that they never had uh, an episode where there was a bad cop? Uh, yes, uh, as I remember, one or two out of all those years. There was one. There was one episode where, after a, a long period of time within the law and order universe, uh, a case. Um, uh, what's the actor? He's now the DA on the show. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That information came that a case he prosecuted many years ago. That there was some new evidence. And it may be that the person he convicted was innocent. Instead of focusing on how they put the wrong person away, they spent the show, the police and him and and his assistant, figuring out what they did wrong, who the real perpetrator was, and working to get the innocent person out. So it was a they're-doing-the-right-thing show. Yeah, 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 very the, much. Yeah, so but not about how did they, how, how what, what, the, you know, they, yeah, the right. They, they list, they listed the mistakes. You should write something about this uh, and your take on it as a fan. Um, somebody already did. I said I read this really cool article on it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> now here's what here's one for you, Rebecca. There was a a a child that was uh, apparently allegedly murdered. And there was a known uh, registered sex offender living in the neighborhood. So they focused on this on this guy. And yeah. I'm reading the, uh, the reports on this. And it says he moved the body from this location to the other location. And then the cops also said that because he was an immediate suspect, he was under surveillance 24-7 from this state onward. And I went to the detective afterwards and I said... Uh, if you had him under surveillance 24-7, you would have watched him move the body. Yeah. And the guy just looked looked at the floor, couldn't look me in the eyes, and said, well, but we closed the case. Uh, yes, that's usually Yeah, and, and that's back to, you know, getting the conviction, mm-hmm. the arrest, getting the conviction versus getting the, the it, actual guilty what, part. What the medical examiner told me was that the death of the child was consistent with the child having been crying and the mother trying to keep him quiet and accidentally suffocated him to death. But oh, it's the end of MASH. She said the, uh, the kid was taken, but the medical examiner tells me, no, you know, she accidentally killed him, but we can't do anything about it now. We already got some guy in prison. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There's a documentary on one of the uh, streaming services. It is a great book. I think it's called CSI Crisis in the Heartland. Oh, good book. Yeah, and where the CSI lab was faking faking the evidence. Instead of telling him what, yeah. what was real, they were just giving him information to, uh, to close the case to convict people, whether they were guilty or not. Yeah. Well, you know, um, in, in the documentary and, and film of The Staircase, yeah. um, you know, they 
they were making the blood spatters go the way they wanted them to go, if, if you uh, remember that. that yeah. Um, you know, trying to hit them. What was it? They had a, 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 a plastic head with blood, and, and they just, I think, what did they do? They tried it 80 times before they got it to flatter the way that they... The way they wanted it. Yeah. I, I want to make it clear to the audience that we're talking about a small percentage of of abhorrent behavior. If you're talking about, you know, several million prosecutions a year, you know, it's not, you know, 999 million of them that are wrong. It's a small percentage, but it is out there. Yeah, what was the yeah. study that uh, up to 65% of people in prison didn't actually do it? Oh my God. I don't think it's that high. So uh, up to, up to that's the maximum. You know, I, I, again, um, when I was younger, because they apparently when you get old enough, they don't want you on a jury anymore. Oh, huh. when I was, you might know too much. <laughs> when I was younger, I went and did jury duty sometimes twice a year. Oh. And in my brief experience at the courts around the San Fernando Valley. Um, and in uh, Santa Monica, that, you know, everyone is generally honorable and they're trying to do their best job. And um, I found the jury system works. Most of the time. Well, it works. It works in the cases I was involved with. Mm-hmm. I was in one yeah. case, a civil uh, malpractice suit, two-week deliberation, and we had two... A physical brawls that the uh, marshals had to break up. Oh wow! People jumping on it and smacking them around and things flying everywhere. <laughs> well, I, my my uh, opinion after following this this trial from 2020 is that the the jury system sometimes works despite what the state or the plaintiffs mm-hmm. uh, are intending. What? Um, um, from from this person's perspective, watching the attempt to get uh, various uh, individuals that were in charge of elections to, in air quotes, find extra votes or invalidate other votes so one person could win over another. The entire chorus from those individuals was no. And that gave me great faith that the system works. Mm-hmm. Even if half the people don't believe it. Yeah, well. That showbiz. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's been all this time, and they've been, of course, they haven't found the body. The kid hasn't called up and said, hey, here oh, I am. No. <laughs> no. And you know the idea of people, people, of course, uh, I mean, there's still a lot of rumors. There are a lot of myths that come up after a case, don't you think? There are just oh, yeah. lots of myths and rumors, and they still are around. Well, one of the awful things she is have, the FBI. she handed him off to somebody. and No, I, I, they, they don't have any reason to think she handed him off to somebody. Well, the FBI put out a statement a few years ago, and I, I put, put it up on my, uh, my blog. The FBI does not like talking heads talking about a case that's in process because yeah. if the perpetrator is watching the TV, which they do, <laughs> right, you yeah. can really piss them off 
<laughs> that one prosecutor always says, I was watching Nancy Grace. He said, had the evidence from the car. He goes, what evidence from the car? There's no evidence in the car. Uh-huh. It was yeah. his case. Yeah, that's why That's why we, you know, we prefer not talking about cases that aren't finished. But in this case... Uh, well, in this case, we don't have a choice. Yeah. Uh, so I have a, I have a, a, a nearly final question. Um, did did you have you heard from Terry about the book? Oh, oh no, no. Um, I you know I tried to reach her at the time, and um, you know I think I probably reached out on Facebook, but but no, uh, she never. Yeah, she never spoke to me. She was on. You can see her on Dr. Phil. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, Dr. Phil's always fun. <laughs> yeah, I think she was... Was um, he a podiatrist or something? She had her own no, two-part it's Oprah's Dr. Episode, Phil. Two-part show yeah. on Dr. Phil. And then she uh, participated in a People Magazine story about her that was um, Desiree thought, and I even think it was... Uh, pretty uh, sympathetic to, to her. Um, so that's, that's the most public she's ever been. Yeah, if I were her, I'd just keep my mouth shut and stay as far away from anything as possible. That's another question. Well, it just occurred to me. Now, there's a good. There was at the time of the abduction a, a good friend of hers that has uh, the same oh. unaccounted time yeah. at the same thank, time. Thank you for reminding me. Her friend, Dee Dee Speicher, who worked at a uh, nursery, a garden center near, near Chiron School, and she is unaccounted for for a couple of hours that same day and she she said and the people that you know they used to have lunch together that worked at the nursery and they couldn't find her that day uh she says she was there but uh they think that carrie picked her up you know in the pickup truck and um she was that she very much knows what what happened. She was deposed at one point. Uh, Desiree Horman, the birth mother, uh, brought a civil suit against Carrie Horman, and that didn't go very far because they needed the police report. Yeah, it's yeah. not good. To continue, and they couldn't get it. They thought they'd been promised it, but they they weren't. So they dropped the civil suit. But during that brief civil suit, uh, Dee Dee was deposed and took the fifth. Well, I think it's something like six hundred times. Oh boy! So she and works at a garden center. I'm yeah. trying to, in the back of my head, figure out how you dispose of this boy, yeah. because there, I've, I've heard of no disposal evidence, other than no. some DNA in the back of the truck, which could have been there 25 years earlier, who yeah. knows? Yeah, there was some DNA in the truck. Also, and I can't, I think this has been made public, there was a, there's a plastic bin that was missing from the house. Well, listen, we've, we've run out of time, but there's yeah, okay. still, still an open case. Borrow of Rebecca Morris's book. Rebecca Morris, The Boy Missing. Yeah, buy the it. Search for Kyron Horman. Yeah. Excellent well, stuff. Thanks. Paperback, e-book, and audio book. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. Oh, it's You're fun. welcome. Good Always fun to have you. Come on. Thank you. Okay. All right. Okay. Hey. Hey, Pearl. Yeah. What's next? Magic Betty Allen of the Demons of Decadence. Live from the Lightning of Lounge. And Outlaw Radio Live.com. Yeah!